Welcome to the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. As we observe the 150th anniversary of Confederation, the objective of this installment is to examine a particular view of the constitutional arrangements that were struck in 1867 through the eyes of Henri Bourassa, one of the most influential French-Canadian intellectuals of the last century. With me in studio is Pierre Anctil, the editor of the 2016 Champlain Society volume entitled Do What You Must, Selected Editorials from Le Devoir under Henri Bourassa from 1910 to 1932. Pierre Anctil is professor of history at the University of Ottawa. Pierre, welcome to the mic. Thank you. And congratulations on this marvelous collection. Tell yes. me about it. What prompted you to collect these editorials? Well, our history and understanding of history rests on documentation. It rests on what we can read in terms of evidence, either produced by governments or individuals, or what we can find in the environment. And one of the key documents is the editorial published in a given newspaper at the time when history is boiling, is, is, is events are pushing people forward and in 1910, Henri Bourassa felt that he had to write something crucial in his own mind and with great clarity about the place of French Canadians and English Canadians in Confederation. And the text we have before us, us is, is really a key explanation of what this great mind felt was the way ahead and what the history of Confederation in Canada meant. Okay, so we're going to read uh, a few excerpts from the editorial that was published on July 26, 1910. The title of the editorial is Canada, Should It Be French or English? Pierre, you're reading. My only objective is to make everyone understand, whether they be English or French or Irish, that Canada has remained an English territory only due to the steadfast loyalty of the French Canadians. Furthermore, this loyalty merits particular more recognition since it was displayed most forcefully during a period when French Canadians held in their hands the fate of the British Crown in Canada, while at the same time the official representatives of Great Britain treated them as pariahs. Without this doubly deserving loyalty, England would not possess an inch, a single inch of territory in America. Far be it for me to conclude that this, that the French Canadians have acquired their rights to dictate their will on the crown or on the naive Anglo majority of the Canadian people. No, Canada is not and must not be French, nor is it, or must it be, English. By its political constitution, by its ethnic composition, just as by natural law, Canada is an Anglo-French confederation, the result of the fertile union between two great and noble races. Under the aegis of the Crown of England, it must remain the asset of a bilingual nation. Neither of the two races has the right to dominate the other or to impose 
either in the internal governing of the country or in regard to the mother country any policy contrary to the tradition and common interest of the Confederation. Any attempt to dominate or assimilate French Canadians will only weaken the strength of their nationalist sentiment. The day that they no longer feel at home, not only in the province of Quebec, but throughout the Canadian Confederation, and that they no longer see in the Constitution the laws and customs of Canada, a symbol of their double origins, they will cease to place the institutions of their country ahead of those of the United States. Anyone who, in the state or in the church, makes an effort to assimilate French Canadians through language, intellectual training, or customs is the worst enemy of the peace, greatness, and especially the unity of the Canadian people. Thank you, Pierre. Now, this is, again, the editorial uh, Le Devoir on July 26, 1910. Tell me about the context. What was in Bourassa's mind on July 26, 1910? Why is he writing this? Well, there is pressure at the time for Canadians and the Canadian government to fund a navy which would be uh, put at the disposal of Great Britain. We're speaking of naval ships, military ships. If a conflict should arise on the horizon, and in 1910 is a moment of relative peace, but everybody knows that Britain and Germany at, at, are at loggerheads, and it could erupt at any moment, and it did four years later. Also, there is pressure within the Catholic Church by either bishops of Irish or English origins to tell the French Canadians that in the interest of the Church, of the unity of the Church in North America, they have to abandon the French language and become Anglophones. Let's unpack that for a second. So, there's tremendous pressure on Canada, on the Canadian government, to contribute to British defense. Wilfrid Laurier, the Prime Minister, has this idea of a compromise. Yes. Uh, his idea is that, well, let's take this opportunity and build a navy. We need to defend Canada. Let's take this opportunity, build a navy, we'll acquire a few ships, we'll take over um, the, uh, the bases, the, the naval bases, uh, we will train our officers, and if there is a conflict, then we will lend our navy to Great Britain. Robert Borden, the opposition leader, is of a different view. His view is that there should be a, a check, a check written to the British government so that they can buy a dreadnought uh, with Canadian funds. Uh, Laurier's compromise was a good compromise. A uh, hundred years later, we have a Canadian Navy. If you said to people today, you know, how about an idea for a Canadian Navy? I think most people would, would say yes. Robert Borden said no. It wasn't sufficient. And Henri Bourassa is not happy that Canada is acquiring a navy. I mean, what does this say about Henri Bourassa? What are his fears? Well, first of all, the key element here is how are French Canadian to interpret Confederation, 1867. 1910 and 19, 1867 is not many decades apart, no. but in 1910, French Canadians are still trying to find their place and to be accepted as they are as a true partner in Canada. 
There is still hostility to French, the French language, to Catholicism. And soon there'll be a law in Ontario, which is uh, Reglement 17. Regulation 17. Regulation 17, banning the use of French in certain schools, certain circumstances. So Bourassa is trying to level the ground and propose a resolution, a global perspective. Where, how should Canada conduct itself and become a true nation, a true country in the face of British imperialism, in the mm -hmm. face of American imperialism as well? And his solution is to say, in view of our history, in view of our potential, the only way we'll forge ahead is if both communities, French Canadians and English Canadians, unite, respect each other, and build a country from that basis. Let's expand on that a little bit. What, what were Bourassa's ideas on confederation? Is there something original here? Yes, there's truly something original and from many angles. Bourassa says, which is not what everyone felt in French Canada, confederation is unavoidable. The conquest of Canada by the British cannot be reversed and we have to come to terms with the situation. We're British citizens. We're loyal to the crown. We'll accept that, but we'll not accept that English Canadians force us, French Canadians, to assimilate and abandon our tradition, linguistic, cultural, and religious. That's what he's saying. And it took quite a bit of audacity to say to English Canada, which was the dominant community, well, we're equal to you. If you don't respect us, you'll just end up in disaster. So, he, is he the one who articulates this concept of confederation as a compact of two nations? I think it came from him. He wasn't the only one to say it, I think, at the time. But he had a newspaper, and he had a great, I'd say, ability to write his ideas clearly and to articulate his thought. He presented this in French, it became an important statement at the time. French Canadians accepted this, and it was transmitted across to English Canada. Mm -hmm. Please consider this as our solution because to the complexity of this country. The alternative view, the view in English Canada, was that confederation was really nothing more than an agreement among provinces, four provinces— Quebec was one of the provinces, and that the confederation was nothing more than an agreement that would lay out government, lay out the basic rules, and that was it. This idea that there was an alliance, that somehow there was a commitment made from English Canada to French Canada, or vice versa, was really not, in English Canada's mind, something that was that was that was uh, that was valid you can you can you can go after louis riel you can go after uh, the french schools because there was no agreement yeah. on that basis there was no agreement that canada was going to be english and french it's not in the constitution no at all so bourassa is really really challenging the english canadian perception the english canadian perception is that canada is part of the empire of course the british mm -hmm. empire and that's sufficient that it has its own nationality and its own personality and its own history, which means accepting the French component of that history and welcoming it, was not in the cards. Mm -hmm. And that was what was lacking. And we can say, I think, without much doubt, that Henri Bourassa was the first French-Canadian 
and first Canadian altogether to articulate a position where Canadian nationalism was welcomed and was given a place and should emerge. You're saying it, something interesting here. You're saying you're talking about a Canadian nationalism. Yes. And I mean, again, we're talking we're 150th anniversary of Canada, yes. and you're talking like a guy coming out of 1967. Well, you know, the first in Canada who defined Canadian nationalism were French Canadians. Very often, they saw that there was no going back to France. There was no undoing of the conquest. And the only way ahead was to forge a new country based on this dual principle. So, official bilingualism? Exactly. Of course, Bourassa didn't speak in those terms mm -hmm. in 1910. But he presented the picture which allowed a dual type of government where both communities would meet on the hill in Ottawa. Equal to equal. Equal to equal, although numerically yes. unequal. <laughs> It was very, <laughs> it's very daring. daring. It's very daring. And yes. he said to English Canada, if you don't do it, your country is condemned to either insignificance or self-destruction. Let's get back to 1910. What he resents, therefore, is this English-Canadian idea that we owe something to Britain. Exactly. And that Canadian foreign policy should not be defined by one partner in the Compact of Confederation, but should be done by both partners. Not only do we owe something to Great Britain, but we are British in a sense, is what often English Canadians say, which will clearly appear during World War I. But Bourassa says, no, we're not neither British nor French, yes. we're Canadians. Okay. Tell me about Henri Bourassa. We've talked about his editorial in uh, 1910. Who is this man? Oh, he's when, a very, why, why, make, why is he so interesting to you? Well, he's a key person because he's the grandson of Louis-Joseph Papineau. The great rebel. Yes. Out of which grew, of course, the first responsible government for Canada in the 1850s, 1860s. Uh, not only is he that, but he's from a social class, which is a social class of the seigneur. He's not from the bourgeoisie, and certainly not from the lower classes of society. Uh, so as a political class emerges in Canada, Bourassa feels that it's, it's his responsibility as a descendant of the seigneur to present a global vision for French Canada and for Canada. He feels responsible for his own people, not the way a bourgeois politician would probably see his own interest or the interest of his own class first. Bourassa sees the interest of the entire country. And as a politician, he refuses to be labeled under a party or to take advantage of his position or to be in a position to demand advantages for his own person. Highly he, principled. He was highly moral and he was highly principled, which makes him a very interesting politician. Okay, let's get back to 1910. Uh, he was born in 1868. That Correct. makes him 42 years old. Correct. He's married. He has five kids. Yes. He's living in Montreal. Yes. Um, What's what's his worldview? Okay, you're talking about his view of Canada. What I mean, he, this seigneur, this this noblesse. He, what, what is this man? He received a very rigid Catholic education. Although 
The Pepinots were often firebrands, but on his mother's side, he received a strict Catholic education, a conservative education as well, socially and culturally. He was always a practicing Catholic. He was, he saw or he regarded highly the authority of Catholic bishops and the Pope and always responded to what the Catholic hierarchy demanded. Uh, yet, um, he was an individual with his own way of thinking because of his position as the grandson of a senior. Was he wealthy? Was he wealthy? No. 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 So he's really living, he's living off his, his work. He um, basically is a member of parliament from 1896 to his resignation in just just after, just just at the end of the Laurier period. And, 1907. Yeah. He resigns in 1907 to go to Quebec. To go to Quebec, where he pursues a political career, and then he switches to journalism, and it's the year of this editorial. Right. So he's taking a chance in creating something which is difficult an independent daily newspaper. And to do this, he goes to wealthy French Canadians mm. and asks for funds that will never be paid back as a social capital to create this institution which will speak for the people where his voice will be heard and where he will control the content of everything that comes out. This is why the editorials are so important. They were planned ahead. He organize his own way of thinking and he created his own political organ, Le Devoir. Tell me briefly, I mean, you've mentioned it a couple of times already, but what attracts you so much to editorials? A lot of people will think that editorials are, you know, not that important. What makes you so fascinated by editorials? We, uh, we have here a pre-electronic age editorial. The radios, radio is barely appearing. In yeah, yeah. TV doesn't exist. You have only two ways to know what's going on on the Hill in Parliament or what politicians think. You either go to a rally and you meet the people or you buy a newspaper. So a newspaper is a key means to achieve knowledge of the political sphere and knowledge of your responsibility as a citizen. So he's investing in the editorial more than just information. He's investing his old worldview, his old understanding of Canadian history and society. And they become lessons, they become principles, and not just comments on what's going on day to day. And in the case of Bourassa, uh, as you indicate in your um, in the long introduction to the to the text, he's also a very fine writer. Oh, he's excellent. Um, these editorials uh, were translated by Tonu Onu, and they were we worked on this both him and me for a long time because they're very complex. But they're a delight to read. Today, we might say that uh, as an editorial today in an average Canadian paper is 700 words, yes. maybe. In Bourassa's time, 2000, 2005, the level of writing was far superior, at least in French. Mm. And you see these long sentences <laughs> today. I mean, it, you know, eight words is as much as the readership will digest. In those days, sentences could go to 50, 75 words. Okay, let's get back to the editorial. Um, in what you read, 
Bourassa mentions the Irish as well yes. as the United States yes. with some apprehension. What's okay. behind this? Well, um, the Irish in 1910 are locked in a deadly struggle to free themselves from Great Britain, as you know, the Irish Catholics. This will happen with the Irish Free State, 1922. Bourassa supports the Irish. He finds that their struggle against Great Britain and Great Britain imperialism is the model for Canada. Mm -hmm. That what the Irish will accomplish in 1922, he feels we have to accomplish as Canadians. Of course, not with the same level of violence, there's a much shorter history, it's not the same environment, it's much further. But that's the model, to break away from British imperialism and develop a Canadian way of being in this country and not from a British model. He finds that we have enough originality, we have enough of an experience as a people to achieve maturity as a full sovereign country. How does he see the United States? He fears the United States. He, he studied there. He, he, he spent time in Worcester as his father was painting a French-Canadian church oh, okay. in Worcester, Mass. Okay. Uh, yes, he did. Uh, in a Catholic uh, Holy Cross uh, college, I think. Uh, he fears the principles of American republicanism and the principles of liberalism. He, he's attached, he's loyal to the crown. He would not have been the rebel to the crown at the time of the American Revolution. And he feels that the Americans... The notion they have, the way the American state was built without a religious component, that's the wrong way. And he says, if, if French Canadians do not receive recognition, they will abandon Canada in favor of the U.S. And this was not an idle threat at the time. It was not an idle threat in the uh, 1800s as Montreal was twice invaded mm -hmm. by the Americans. And meanwhile, you have a prime minister, uh, Wilfrid Laurier, who's very open to free trade with the United States. And a year after the editorial is written, will actually conclude an agreement with the United States for True. reciprocity. I can just imagine what uh, Henri Bourassa would have thought of that. Yeah, he was he was he was hostile to both the French Republic and the American Republic. He found that the uh, political system in both of these countries had erred too far from the principles that were essential in the governance of a of a of a country. There's an aspect of his spirituality in here. Yes. Um, he really does want to defend the Catholic Church yes. and he believes in the ideas of of religion in society. Yes. The idea of, well, we know what's happening in the French Republic at that time. It's very hostile to religious interests. And the Catholics uh, in, 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 in um, the United States are suffering uh, Catholics also. are suffering from the New Nothing movement. Yes. Uh, slightly before, but uh, it still reverber reverberates. So he's really reacting to his period, isn't he? I want to come back then, uh, finally, on the issue of where you situate. We've talked about, you've talked about Bourassa's nationalism. Um, where do you situate? And a lot of people have, have hesitated about this, and we've been, we've been discussing this basically since Bourassa wrote the editorial over 115 years ago, 117 years ago. But where do you situate Bourassa here on the spectrum? Do you see him as a federalist, or do you see him as an independentist? Um, where was he at the time? Where would you think he would be today? I'm asking you to speculate, yeah, and this is I a know. great historian's yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. Where do you see him? Well, when the editorial is written, 
the independentist movement or the sovereignty movement or even Lionel Groux, none of this exists. There are two brands of Quebec politics. Either you embrace liberalism, like Bourassa did, hoping that compromise would be brought and that French Canada would be better accepted because liberalism meant that. Or you're a conservative and you want Canada to remain the way it is, part of Great Britain. That's not the majority position in French Canada. So by today's standards, he would be a federalist, of course. But there's no other option at the time. Uh, Quebec, the Quebec provincial government was weak in those years. Its responsibilities were very limited, the mm -hmm. same in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And uh, to, to pit a province against a country, uh, federalism against uh, a provincial sovereignty uh, project is a bit artificial in, in Bourassa's time. It's a fascinating issue. We're, we're going to be discussing Bourassa for a long time. I think that uh, the case is, is easily made of his importance and of um, the degree to which he was followed. Uh, thank you for taking the time today, Pierre. Uh, thank you for this invaluable collection uh, for the Champlain Society. Uh, our thanks also to Mr. Tonu Onu, uh, who translated the editorials from uh, French to English. This was uh, Pierre Anctil talking about Henri Bourassa's view of confederation in 1910. Uh, this excerpt uh, was, is included in the 2016 Champlain Society volume entitled Do What You Must, Selected Editorials from Le Devoir under Henri Bourassa, 1910-1932. Thank you very much, Thank Pierre. Thank you so much. I want to remind our listeners that the document we've just discussed is available on the Champlain Society website. Please visit at www.champlainsociety.ca. This is the Champlain Society podcast. My name is Patrice Zuzil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. It was produced by Sabrina Birch, Cindy Long, and Vince Piet. Thank you all. See you next time. <laughs>